Hello and welcome to this IFG live event on how to make a success of COP26. My name is Tom Sass. I'm an associate director at the Institute for Government and I lead uh, our work on net zero. So the COP26 summit after much anticipation is almost upon us in just two and a half weeks. Uh, world leaders and we wait eagerly to see exactly who um, will gather in Glasgow for this really important uh, meeting. Um, of course, there's been a huge amount of progress in the last year since this summit was originally due to happen. We've seen big changes in the US's position, of course, announcements from China, announcements from many other countries, including South Africa quite recently. There is, of course, still an awful amount still to do. Um, you know, by most analysis, we're still quite a way off closing the gap that was first identified in Paris uh, six years ago. There's many other areas where progress is needed, whether that's carbon markets, uh, you know, aid to poorer countries um, or indeed financial reporting uh, on how companies declare their emissions. Uh, Alex Sharma, uh, the COP president, was out on the airwaves yesterday just asking uh, G20 countries to step up and really calling for this to be the moment um, where action is needed. So what is needed to ensure that we get to an ambitious agreement? Um, what's achievable uh, and, and what, what, what does the UK need to do to secure that? And what are businesses and investors looking for uh, from COP26 to help drive this transition? Um, well, I'm delighted to be joined by a really great panel to discuss all of that. Um, first, we have Allegra Stratton. Um, Allegra is the Prime Minister's spokesperson for COP26. Uh, she's been leading the government's messaging and helping to explain the government's climate agenda to different audiences. And, and we have to provide us a bit of an inside view of the government's approach to chairing this, this crucial summit. Uh, and of course, before joining the government, she was a well-known journalist at the BBC and ITV. Uh, next up, we have Emma Howard-Boyd. Emma's chair of the Environment Agency, interim chair of the Green Finance Institute, board member at DEFRA, advisor to the Board of Trade and UN Global Ambassador for the Race to Zero and Race to Resilience ahead of COP26. And um, adapt or die was the wonderfully crisp message, message Emma offered in a report from the Environment Agency that was published just this morning. So we look forward to hearing about that aspect of these negotiations. Uh, Simon Eaves is CEO for Accenture in the UK and Ireland. Uh, he's a member of Accenture's Global Management Committee uh, and was previously Chief Strategy Officer responsible for the company's strategy and investments. Uh, and James Close is head of uh, the Climate Centre of Excellence and Environment at NatWest Group. Uh, he's spent a career working at the interface of the public and private sectors on how to mobilise finance. Uh, and he was previously Director of Climate Change at the World Bank and also worked at the Treasury. A uh, little bit of housekeeping. So this event is obviously live and on the record. Um, a recording will be on our website tomorrow. Um, please do start sending your questions in now. You can use the, the button at the bottom of your screen to do that. Keep them brief. Um, please ensure that they are in fact questions. Um, if you see someone else's question that you like, please upvote that rather than repeating it. Um, we'll be tweeting the event out from the, the account IFG events using the hashtag IFGCOP26. And I'd like to thank very much Accenture for sponsoring the event. So Allegra, I'm going to start with you. Um, very simply, what's needed, what needs to be agreed at COP26 for it to be a success? First, th thanks for having me, everyone. First of all, I'm, I am sorry I don't have the same backing. Um, I've rushed here. I wish I had your backing. It looks it looks summery and sunny, uh, just like it is outside. So for COP26 to be a success, it's quite simple. Um, we need to get to the end of COP26 and for everyone to feel that we can 1.5 has been kept alive. So what that means is that the judgment is it is possible to limit temperature increase to 1.5. And to get there, we need to have demonstrated momentum and real progress on coal, cars, cash and trees. Um, on coal, we want rich nations to phase out domestic use of coal by 2030 and for developing ones to have a bit more time 2040. On cars, we, we are asking markets and manufacturers to move to the same kind of diesel and petrol phase out date that we have. We have 2030, but the expectation and hope is 2035. 
Um, cash is the $100 billion annual pot that was promised to developing um, vulnerable nations in 2009 at Copenhagen COP that I was at and I think James was at and maybe others were at and we can maybe talk about that in, in, a, in a greater detail in a second. And then trees, we want to halt and reverse deforestation uh, by 2030 as well. The reason that these, these buckets matter is that if you can make real progress in those areas, and by the way, we've already seen progress in the time that we've been president, but presidency, but we'll come on to that later. Um, you will bring around carbon reductions, PDQ, and it will actually begin to, 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 to get to make real progress for that 2030 date that the science since Paris has told us is so important. This is one of the things that has changed since the Paris Agreement, that that, that 2030 date has gone 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 up in people's um, it, it, people's priorities. Yeah. And, you know, tell us a bit about the um, the sort of atmosphere or the mood within the UK team. You know, this has been a huge effort, um, you know, negotiating all around the world, many, many months of work. Mm. Um, we see, you know, Alok in his speech yesterday, you know, really sort of starting to call countries out, potentially, you know, talking about how difficult this is going to be over the next couple of weeks and at the conference itself. I mean, what what's the sort of mood in the camp, as it were? Well, as you say, Alok made that important speech yesterday, and 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 I take take my 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 lead from his tone and and his central point, uh, which 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 you will all know about, which is that if we do not see more of these NDCs, sorry for the jargon, but everyone's going to have to get 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 a lexicon and and get used to these these acronyms. NDCs mean nationally determined contribution. They're essentially their nearer term plans. And if we do not see more more NDCs from more of the G20, then we will not be getting the 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 real world changes that we need in order to keep 1.5 alive. So we need more progress um, at the moment. All of the NDCs that we do have amount to temperature of 2.7. So it is it is quite clear that we need more ambition, and that is Alok Sharma's part of his role. People may or may not know that the UK, that any presidency has 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 a role to be the convener and a fair broker to every country involved, but also has a, a job to drive ambition. So it's a kind of double hatting of on the one hand you know, being being friends and trusted and talking to everybody. On the other hand, cajoling and pushing and and um, encouraging countries to go as far as they can. And right now, Alok has said, you know, we do not we do not have the ambition and the commitments we need from all of the G20. The G20 is so important because it's the lion's share is 80 percent of global emissions. So um, uh, but we have had you know reasons to be optimistic. South Africa came forward recently in the last couple of weeks with a with an encouraging NDC. Uh, the, the reason why that is such an important example for all of us in the the the, the uh, working for Alloc and the Prime Minister is that it is a country that is is um, has has been reliant on coal, has many jobs, many people in South Africa re rely, and this is the thing no, no one forgets, but sometimes can be lost in the kind of discussion of of the acronyms and the and the sort of macro economy look, but fundamentally people do work in coal industry around the world and are wanting to know what new jobs they would get. But South Africa is is working with Alok's presidency to 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 be ambitious. So South Africa was encouraging. We obviously had the movement from Turkey um, that they wanted. They 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 hadn't signed up to, to Paris and now they will. So we have had reasons to be optimistic. Um, you will have seen Ed, Ed Miliband's been out on the attack uh, this morning. Um, particularly on, on the sort of role of the Prime Minister in this. Um, what do you see, I mean, as the official spokesman, what, what, what is Boris Johnson's role in this conference and, and what can we expect from him in the, in the coming weeks? He's driving ambition as well. I mean, he's he's on the he's on the phone. As I think you all know, he spoke to, to, to Modi. He's um, pushing each country in some of the ways I've just been outlining for you um, to think about how they make these transitions to lower carbon tech and showing what Britain has done, how we have been fastest to decarbonize our economy of major economies. Um, that we are, we have had this huge success with coal, for instance. So in 2012, 40% of our power generation was from coal. Now it's 1.5% and we won't be using any come 
2024. So, so, so not just saying, you know, cajoling, um, but actually proving that it's possible and proving that, um, that, that the price of some of these renewables has gone down hugely uh, and encouraging them, the, the sort of language we use is that is leapfrog. But, but essentially, I mean, James and others will be much more illuminating on this, but essentially that this tech is fast going to be obsolete and you want to pile in big time to lower carbon tech because that's where the rest of the world will be eventually. And, and just finally, before bringing in the rest of the panel, what can we expect at the conference in Glasgow itself? You know, this is going to be quite a different sort of look and feel to some of those previous conferences you mentioned. You know, it's going to be smaller, perhaps sort of less of a, a range of, of different groups there. What have you got planned? Well, OK, where to start? I mean, it's going to be large. You say smaller, but I think we're expecting it to be uh, very complex. So there's a number of ways that I can try and uh, paint some pictures for you. The first is the first is um, that that um, there's the formal completion of the Paris Agreement. So there will be the negotiations going on around that. So that's the technical thrust of what will happen. But then, as I say, there'll be these these um, these drives and all these different buckets on cold cast cash and trees. I've said it a lot now. Um, and and to that end, first couple of days, I think you all might know this, but I'll, but I'll, for those that don't, the first couple of days will be the World Leaders Summit, where we have over 120 world leaders who will come together, and there will be events within that where they will be talking about the technology of the future and the kind of relationships and partnerships that we all need to 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 to, to make prior agenda to point out um, what what's what's the PM's role in this, but his role at the World Leaders Summit will be to to push. And then we then have a series of theme days. Um, it's Energy Day, oh, sorry, forgive me, it's Finance Day on Wednesday, it's Energy Day on Thursday. Uh, there will be a Youth Day on Friday. Uh, there's another Nature Day uh, on the Saturday, Sunday rest. I could go on. Anyway, so you will have theme days throughout. Uh, so in tandem with that negotiation being completed and, and, the, and the very complex work that our negotiators are have been doing for quite a while now, you'll also have um, these these themes and um, particular particular areas where we think if we can make progress at COP, if we can get more and more countries signed up, more momentum, we can be bringing down carbon emissions very quickly. Brilliant. Um, Emma, I, I mentioned uh, in the intro that report which you've at the Environment Agency put out this morning. And of course, you know, we, we spend so much time talking about the mitigation side of, of this discussion. Uh, and adaptation sometimes gets sort of pushed out. Do you think, you know, under the sort of COP26 banner, there's enough going on on, on resilience, adaptation and, and preparing for, for climate shocks? Thanks for the question. Great to be here and also great to hear Allegra talk about coal, cars, cash and trees. It's something that I have um, distinctly in my memory is um, back in December 2015 when I was um, at the Paris COP when the Paris COP um, agreement was being signed at COP21 and I was part of a UK finance delegation calling for the transition to a low carbon economy and I had to leave the negotiating hall because I was being receiving a briefing from an environment agency colleague about flooding in Carlisle. Incidentally, our chief executive is there today opening a new flood scheme, so showing that real action is taking place on this agenda. And when floods threaten, we advise people to prepare, act and survive. The climate crisis is global, but its impacts are in your village, your shop and your home. And we've got to make sure that communities feel that the gap between what gets discussed at global conferences and the lived experience of climate impacts, if it's too wide, that compact allowing leaders to make vast commitments on people's behalf could rupture. So I'm really pleased to see the UK government is focusing on two goals, in particular the, the net zero goal, net zero by mid-century and keeping 1.5 degrees alive, and also focusing on adapting to protect communities and natural habitats. This does give adaptation its due, but the world's thinking has to change faster than the climate. And the global community, in my view, is currently still neglecting adaptation. So we need our leaders 
to step up. And today, the Environment Agency, you've mentioned this report, it's our third report to ministers under the Climate Change Act about how we are helping England prepare for climate impacts. This year, we completed our uh, the government's six-year capital programme on time and on budget, enhancing flood protection to over 300,000 homes. And we've started the next five-year programme, that's £5.2 billion of flood um, programme. And our national flood strategy out to 2100 was recently praised by the Committee on Climate Change for commitments to nature-based solutions. So as we prepare for floods, we must also prepare for drought. And um, the Environment Agency has made 320 abstraction licenses more sustainable, returning 47 billion litres of water to the environment, equivalent to supplying over 850,000 people water every year. So that's the flood and the drought agenda. But the Environment Agency alone cannot protect everyone from climate disruption. It's a whole society effort. So what we're doing in this country uh, has to be repeated around the world. It's cheaper to invest early in climate resilience than to live with the costs of inaction. And the city is a global leader in green finance. But we need adaptation to be integral to government, businesses and communities. People will soon question why it isn't. And while mitigation might save the planet, it is adaptation and resilience that will save millions of lives and livelihoods. Choosing one over the other is like telling a bird it only needs one wing to fly. So that's where I am keen to see progress in Glasgow. And the Monday, Allegra went through the first week, Monday is Adaptation and Resilience Day. But I am keen that Adaptation and Resilience features in every day, on every day, whether it's finance, whether it's energy, whether it's cities, whether it's nature, it is core to our entire approach at the COP discussions. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. That's really helpful. I just wonder this current sort of gas crisis and wider sort of supply crisis that we're having at the moment. How does that feed into your thinking about resilience? Because clearly, actually, this transition, particularly if we look at it globally, there's going to be an awful lot of sort of questions about energy demand and how different countries sort of get what they need. Is that sort of this context that we're in at the moment actually influencing your thinking as you look ahead to this conference? Of course it will. The whole resilience agenda that we've seen over the last um, year, 18 months with the pandemic preparing at not just at national level, but at a regional level will help inform our thinking for the climate emergency. And I think one of the areas where we can see progress is moving from, uh, and this isn't my phrase, uh, there's a, a resilience commission that's looked at moving from just in time to just in case. And I think this longer term thinking, knowing the shocks that we are starting to see happen ever bigger around the world means that we need to plan. It's not just governments. My background is the investment world. It is businesses and it is investors too. And I think that's where we're going to see, fingers crossed, some really exciting announcements made in Glasgow where businesses and investors, cities and others around the world are stepping up to look not just at reducing emissions, but building resilience into the way they're doing business. Thank you. Um, and just while I've got you, Emma, I'm going to actually bring in a, a really interesting question that we've got from uh, Tony Diver from the Daily Telegraph. So he mentions the Environment Bill and says the government's obviously not yet managed to pass the Environment Bill, which enters ping pong next week after lots of amendments in the Lords. And he asks, do you think it will pass before the COP, as was always Boris Johnson's ambition? I think that remains the ambition. I think it's over to those who introduce these laws to make sure that that happens. Thank you. OK, very good answer. OK, I'll, I'll turn to um, James now. Uh, James, what do you think investors want to see agreed at COP26? Yeah, thank you, Tom. And hello, everybody. Um, I think it's worth just remembering that in the Paris Agreement, uh, Article 2.1c is that uh, all financial flows should be consistent with the Paris uh, Agreement, the objectives of the Paris Agreement and also sustainable development. So it is an anchor point that finance needs to flow for this transition. 
uh, from the Paris Agreement. I think what's really important is uh, to signal that, that we are serious about the level of ambition that's required to shift the economy away from coal and fossil fuels uh, towards a, a renewable future. Um, and I think that's really where uh, the nationally determined contributions sit, because that um, enables us as a bank and asset owners and fund managers to plan to support the transition, which is what we're doing here at NatWest. We've declared uh, just today our uh, target of 100 billion of uh, climate and sustainable finance and funding by uh, 2025 from, from now. And that's a significant increase on the previous target that we had. And I think to Emma's point, we'll see lots of this uh, ambition and mobilization of finance coming towards um, the delivery of the goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, so the level of ambition and the NDCs are really central to all of this. Uh, we're very lucky in the UK that we have a high level of ambition and a very clear pathway uh, towards net zero. Um, and, uh, you know, the policy certainty that underpins that ambition is also um, an important signal for us as uh, bankers and financiers. Um, and we're looking for that policy clarity that will enable us to mobilise our funding for things like uh, residential retrofit and uh, green homes, um, uh, uh, making the UK's building stock uh, much more climate smart and low carbon and also, to Emma's point, resilient uh, to the existing temperature rises that we've got embedded. You know, Promoting electric vehicles as well is something that is going to be very important. If we get the charging infrastructure rolled out, that will take away rage anxiety and people will be able to go out and buy those electric vehicles. And if they buy them with the right financing, they can convert um, an annual operating cost into a combination of a, a lower operating cost because electric vehicles are much cheaper to run uh, with um, the financing that comes from uh, buying the car outright and the uh, total cost will be less than that of um, the internal combustion engine vehicles that we're uh, driving around today. Uh, I think the other thing that's really uh, important and I think you're going to hear a lot about uh, in Glasgow is the alignment between asset owners, asset managers and bankers and this is brought together in the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero um, which has got uh, I think about 90 trillion uh, dollars of uh, finance associated with it and hoping to be 100 trillion by the time we get to uh, to the to the COP. Um, and I think that's a really good way of showing how uh, banks, asset owners and fund managers can align uh, to make sure that this money is flowing towards the transition, both in terms of uh, replacing coal with renewables, uh, but also uh, to Emma's point, uh, building resilience and helping the uh, economy adapt through uh, much higher quality and more resilient infrastructure that's going to be required over the course of the next uh, 30 years to support the growth that we need and the opportunity for people uh, to feel part of this uh, transition and see the benefits that it brings, not just from a climate perspective, but also from a health and security perspective as well. Thanks, James. Just to pick up a couple of points there. So we hear a lot about this 100 billion uh, figure of sort of, um, you know, commitment from from wealthier countries towards helping uh, other countries to adapt to climate change, to mitigate climate change. Um, that, of course, came from the Paris Agreement where, you know, you, you, you've sort of been to these previous summits, but was was not quite sort of honoured or, you know, it wasn't clear that it was quite reached. And there's a big refocus there around this being an issue of trust, actually, at this conference to re-establish that. Um, do you think there's sort of sufficient progress being made on that aspect of the kind of, you know, government's commitment to, to financing this? Well, I think it was very helpful to see the US double its uh, pledge for climate funding and that helps to close the gap. Um, I think it's really important now to go around and look at developed countries that are perhaps a little slower in giving and committing their money uh, as a proportion of their GDP and make sure that that uh, uh, money is forthcoming. And I think it really is a matter of trust, uh, Tom, between developed and developing countries, which is why uh, it's such an important part of making COP26 a success. Uh, I think there's an expectation that we will get to that 100 billion number 
um, to sufficient confidence for everybody to feel as though we're there. I mean, there will always be debate about what's included and what's not included uh, ahead of COP. And I think that will, uh, if we can do that, that will set the tone for a really constructive dialogue uh, that Allegra alluded to um, and that the UK can lead. Uh, but it is really, really important. And I think it's also important that that money is not just for mitigation, but is also for adaptation and resilience. And to Emma's point, if we think we've got problems in the UK, just imagine what it's like being a Pacific island where this is really existential for you. And I wanted to ask you on, on one more point, which I might also bring Simon in on later, which was around reporting requirements. Um, so this is a sort of niche, sort of nerdy area, but actually really, really important if you look at, you know, sort of what is going to drive change through investment and businesses. And at the moment, we have quite a sort of range of different requirements. Maybe they don't all necessarily quite have teeth or the sort of, you know, um, what are you looking for from COP26 in terms of that discussion? Well, I think we've got the architectures in place. I mean, TCFD, of course, the, the um, uh, Task Force for Climate Finance Related Disclosure is, is a fundamental pillar of all of that. Um, and for banks and financial institutions and businesses as a whole, I think that, uh, that the more that's adopted, the easier it is to get a, a common view of where the risks lie and what we can do about them. Um, I think there will also be some really useful uh, material through GFANS on, for example, um, working group three, just to be even more nerdy uh, around the real, uh, real economy transitions that are taking place um, that can kind of codify all of those various uh, approaches and try and bring them together in a way that uh, maximizes uh, convergence and um, uh, reduces the, uh, the costs of, of doing all of this. Um, so it's, it's not going to happen overnight, uh, but there are some really good signals that we are getting to some consistency around some of these reporting standards and certainly some of the best in class ones uh, are really uh, quite effective, I think, in communicating what's being done. Great. Uh, Simon, turn to you now. Um, what do businesses, I mean, like yours, but also the very many that you work with, want to see agreed at the COP? Uh, thanks, Tom, and great to be here. Um, if I may, sort of three, three I think, which would be fairly common view, and then maybe three further points. I think the first one plays to what Allegra introduced. Business would want a reassertion of 1.5 degrees. I think it's behind the 10-point plan, which is an excellent list of the sort of things we should get behind. And a reaffirmation of that and a commitment is massively important. That's one. I think secondly, the, you know, the IEA report today, which talks to required tripling of spending in renewables is fundamentally important, particularly when we've just gone through the recent price shocks associated with gas that starts to impact investment plans. So stability around supply of renewables is going to be massive for businesses to see. And I think the third one is it's very clear that this requires cooperation, public and private a whole new level of, of, of cooperation uh, for the next generations, which we need to see, and frameworks which support that are incredibly important. Um, then if I go to sort of three more maybe nuanced or different factors, just to, to put some thoughts down. To your last question, um, we, we see the variability of adoption of standards as, as an issue because I think Allegra mentioned that technology is going to play a key role in this data, transparency, comfort about greenwashing, et cetera, and, and data standards consistently to back this. If we think about it, accounting standards have been around for a period of time, but actually sustainability standards are hard to get our mind around. It's taken time. And I do believe that's a big blocker to the use of technology and the use of data, which combined with human skills is going to be the answer to this. And, and that that is, I, I think, a big deal and next agenda item, which was described as nerdy, but is really quite fundamental in our belief. Um, second, and some colleagues may not say this, I think business needs a kick, right? We've just done a, um, a survey of the 1000 top companies in Europe. And from what we've seen, only a third have committed to net zero by 2050. Uh, interestingly, 37% of, of the UK proportion have, but of those, only about one in 20 look like they're on track to achieve their target. Now, that could be some of the variabilities, availability, et cetera, but currently our view is that people and business aren't yet on track to their commitments, and their commitments are 2050, which generally is quite slow. So, you know, there's, there's, there's the carrot and the stick, which I think also needs to be applied here to business because some plans are just not aggressive enough in our view. And then... Uh, Thirdly, um, playing to point nine in the uh, in the ten point plan and where Emma's pushing, we believe biodiversity needs to have a you know a much clearer seat at the table. Um, it, it's 
you know, it, it's kind of one of many as opposed to being fundamental. And I say this for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I think we will we need to shift consumer appetite and find consumer agency in the solution. It's really important, massively important to move consumers. And I think they significantly access biodiversity more than nebulous topics like climate movement change, right? And so it's massively important, I think, for the biodiversity topic to raise up. And secondly, per what Emma said yesterday, the increasing evidence of the requirements of sequestration of carbon, reforestation to soil depth to stem flooding, all of these factors are just coming back to the fact that nature is a massive part of the solution to the challenge and we're only just getting our mind around it. So those would be where we're at. I think there's three basics of business, but I think standards, uh, you know, some challenge to business and raising biodiversity's importance, you know, those those are, I think, things we should need to get onto the next wave. That'd be our view. Really interested in your your point around your survey there. And, you know, obviously we do see a lot from business in terms of sort of bringing forward commitments, trying to sort of, you know, look like they're, they're doing things. But as you say, a much more of a challenge to actually drive that change through their supply chains in a sort of in, in, in a rigorous way. Um, yeah. I, you mentioned a couple of the tools for achieving that, you know, things like reporting standards. I mean, do you think there's anything else that's needed? Is it, you know, stronger regulation from government? Is there, you know, more of a sense of how we can sort of help consumers to identify who's genuine about this and actually who's doing a bit of greenwashing and trying to appear that they are? Well, I think the standards debate fits with holding companies to account, but also consumer access. I mean, if you just recently looked at, okay, Oatly Milk just started to publish its CO2 on its packaging. Not so long back, it, was, it wasn't it was there. And now that will start to become a standard. Interestingly, it's driving their differentiation. So consumer standards are as important, I think, as business standards and clarity, because those consumer movements we saw in COVID can be absolutely massive. Then your other point on the sort of movements, um, it's going to be tricky because businesses need to move transactional supply chains to collaborative supply chains. We've developed over an extended period of time by friction costs within supply chains globally. And now the only way to solve this is to collaborate differently. The fashion industry can't solve some of its challenges without sorting out and working very, very differently with some of its supply side. And for example, in the Get Nature Positive handbook that we just co-authored with the Council for Sustainable Business, one of the massive effects of that is the dyes in the system and the effect on the environment, not just the labor. So the next challenge there, Tom, is how we get businesses to be prepared to work across collaboratively and reinvent their supply chains is a massive deal if we're gonna move beyond the basics of scope one and two and really get into scope three. That's the other challenge. Fantastic, thank you. Um, going to start turning to audience questions now and Allegra I've got one that I'm going to start with uh, you on but Emma I might bring you in as well so from Mike Rowell who asks um, what are the COP26 team or the government more widely doing to engage directly with citizens regarding the causes and prevention of the climate crisis I wonder if you'd be happy to pick that one up Allegra yeah sure big one um, uh, we are um in particular, the what I've been involved in 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 the time that I've been working with Alok and the team is um, we do civil society outreach and we talk to people not just from the United Kingdom but youth activists and uh, different communities from around the world. Um, I, I think it's I think it's once a month and it's uh, quite a long session and we're trying. Alok has said it repeatedly. We do want this to be the most inclusive COP. And I think the fundamental reason for, for that is that, and this might take, you know, people who are not familiar with, with COPs, it, it, it might take, it's a brilliantly simple um, concept, but it, it does take some getting used to. COP will only work if everybody agrees. It is, it is that simple. Um, it is, it is, uh, and that's why you saw at Paris, um, vulnerable nations threatened to walk out, and that was a significant problem. Um, so to that end, Alloc is clear that everybody needs to be feeding in and feeling and actually being listened to all the way along so that the, the COP principles, the principles he is applying as he goes about being COP president, but also what ends up coming out at the end is something that has reflected as many views as possible, but it is a tough gig. It's really, really hard. But um, Alloc speaks to as many of uh, the representatives, friends of COP group as well, but, it, but in particular that civil society and youth piece to make sure that their views are being reflected early enough on, because if they say come COP that it hasn't worked for them, that will be that would be a problem. And Emma, is that sort of citizen engagement 
element also quite a big factor in in your plans around resilience climate adaptation and so on and if so can you sort of give some details about how exactly you'd go about it it's it's hugely important to the adaptation and resilience agenda it's important what i see at the environment agency being out in communities i was out in mythenroy the calder valley the other day opening a flood scheme where we work directly with the local community who become flood wardens who become the first line of defense as we see these events take place but in my global role as well it was very clear i was part of the global commission on adaptation the role of local adaptation adaptation, that, that sense that this is a global issue, but the way you need to respond to climate change is very local, very much in your community. And just this morning, I was taking part in um, a call with those ambassadors to the races to zero and resilience. I focus on the resilience side. I think uh, net zero is incredibly important, but I'm really keen to be channeling views from the local adaptation work, the local adapters, as we're now referring them to, to COP, because some of them won't be able to get there. And hearing from what people are doing in Bangladesh, in India, in parts of Africa is so vital to the outcomes that we are successful at at COP, this COP and, and future COPs. So it's really tough. I know um, the COP team have also involved David Attenborough to um, get in, uh, be the people's spokesperson. And I think he is traveling slowly to Glasgow to talk to as many different people en route so that he really feels that he is representing citizens. And the work of assemblies in this country, but around the world, I know there will be a lot of leaders turning up in Glasgow who have come with that knowledge of what the citizen wants from this agenda. Thank you. James or Simon, did you want to come back on that or shall I go to another question? No. Okay, um, so we've got a couple of questions here, quite difficult questions I would say, on the the international element of, of the negotiations at COP26. So I might come first to Allegra and then perhaps to James on these. So the first is, is it fair or realistic to expect developing nations to quickly decarbonise when the developed world has benefited from historic industrialisation? So this is a very familiar element of these negotiations. And then the second one from, from Tony Sudworth is more topical. He asks, is the expansion of China's coal-fired power stations in light of their power issues a real blocker at this stage? Allegra, could I start with you on those? And then James, I might come to you. I suppose it's the same sort of answer to both questions, which is um, to, to, to bring in the South Africa example again, um, the, 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 the point that, the, that, that has been emphasised is, is that these the shift to renewables and to a range of different energy sources um, will ultimately be better for, for South Africans, will yield jobs too, but will also be a lower carbon and therefore better for all of their populations. I mean, that's the thing that you sort of is not a kind of particularly wonky point, but it's something that it's worth reminding yourself of. You know, in all of these countries, there are issues of air pollution, there are issues of you know kerosene lamps that get knocked over and and and, and are a fire hazard and are a, a, a health hazard. So, um, but but to go back, you know, it, it fundamentally is about uh, encouraging people through a range of alliances as well, sharing sharing knowledge of the technology, sharing knowledge of how you would implement this technology, how you would invest, and so on. Fundamentally, it's about um, seeing these 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 coal-fired power stations as stranded assets this this idea that you might pile in tomorrow but you might regret it really quite quickly at which point um and i know i've said it before but you know it, it this is an economic as well as an environmental decision that we're trying to encourage and support other countries to take just on the china point um you know I'm sure most people on this call know this, but Unger saw China move to end its international financing of coal power. Um, coming on the heels of Japan and South Korea doing that earlier in the year around the time of, of the G7, um, it's, th this eliminates the funding for 90% of international coal. So there is progress. Um, you know, do, do, you know, this is this is about momentum building, and we have already seen it on coal. And and for me, the most powerful thing is listening to Antonio Guterres 
of the UN who says, you know, you want to get a 1.5, just get rid of coal. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, it, it now clearly this is, it, 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 I don't want to be too, too um, uh, flippant about it because it is about keeping the lights on in these countries. But um, nonetheless, you look at South Africa uh, and you look at the movement that's happened from the Chinese on international financing uh, and it is progress. Mm. That's a really important point on the kind of, you know, the facts on, on what really is happening. I just actually, Allegra, wanted to ask you on one point, because I know you've been thinking about how the government explains the need for domestic action to different audiences here in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and there were some really interesting sort of focus groups around the Conservative Party conference, and they were sort of looking at this issue of climate change and gas boilers and so on. And quite often this issue of, well, China's not doing anything, China's building coal plants was, was coming up. Is that something you're thinking about in terms of how you actually explain what's going on around the world to justify what we're doing here? We do hear that point being made, but fundamentally, um, my I always feel that that there is an advantage to being the first mover. And so if we can be um, pioneers in the technology, that will mean jobs. And that will mean um, jobs, mean mean improvement for communities and uh, horizons being extended and international travel for our young people who've got these skills in, you know, engineering, wind turbines, climbing up to the top and uh, out at sea in terrible weather. And they can take those skills around the world. So fundamentally, I see it as a first mover advantage. Um, and uh, we've already we've already got a proven track record in this area that we should be really proud of. Um, the, the, the point that comes through to, to all of us about the focus groups again and again, and it's a very similar finding, is that fundamentally this is now in the top three of their concerns. Um, and it's quite similar across many demographics. And uh, people see it as a very, I think somebody said it earlier in this session, and it, it's true that it's a, it's, a, it's a very simple connection. I think Simon said it, it's a simple connection with the natural world and people feel that that their lives and their communities are out of balance and they would like that to be addressed. Yep. James, I wonder if I could bring you in there, sort of drawing perhaps on your experience at, at the World Bank as well and your, your sort of uh, experience in these negotiations in the past. I mean, do you think we are doing enough to provide a sort of pathway, a kind of fair, reasonable pathway for lower income countries? Um, well, I think, um, the answer to that question is, is we need to do more. Um, and I think the uh, the narrative around it, which I thought the Carbon Trucker Initiative uh, really described very well, is we've got to turn this into a conversation about the gain that comes from uh, decarbonising and the benefit that's going to bring, rather than the pain that comes from shifting away from uh, fossil fuels. And I think what we've seen is the change of the economics. So almost everywhere in the world, renewables are cheaper than fossil, new fossil fuel uh, energy investment. And I think the, uh, the most compelling piece of work we did at the World Bank around this was uh, around decarbonizing development. And it was really uh, getting people to think about the destination, not the first step. And if you think about what your economy is going to look like in 2030 or 2050, you do different things than if you think about how you're going to provide heat and light uh, tomorrow. And I think that's where the help's required to build up uh, capacity in countries, to help them make those decisions, to embed them in NDCs, and then to provide the financing to enable that to happen. And I think in developed economies, what we can do is we can invest in the big shifts that are required for the next generation of technologies, whether that's uh, carbon capture usage and storage or whether it's battery technologies bring down the prices which is what we've seen for renewables um, and enable emerging markets and developing countries to adopt them and, and finance them through the right combination of uh, development finance and private finance and that's really a very simple idea that came out of the Addis Ababa uh, development summit ahead of um, Paris which was to turn the billions into trillions and the billions of, of money provided from a development finance perspective can mobilise uh, private sector investment. And, and, you know, that capital will be rational. It'll go to where the risk returns are uh, appropriate. Um, and I think that's how we get uh, emerging markets access to the capital uh, that they need in order to support uh, low carbon development. 
and that will mean you know enabling them to get access to education and healthcare, um, making sure that we protect the natural environment. I mean, a lot of these countries have had to chop down trees because that's their primary source of income. How do you reward them for keeping the forests intact? Um, and how do you use uh, indigenous peoples as the protectors of those forests? And all of those issues are baked into the Paris Agreement. And the opportunity that the UK has got as the COP presidency and the role that we can all play a part of is bringing that to life through COP26 uh, and enabling us all, as, as Allegra says, to collectively buy into this uh, new vision of both uh, development in developed countries, but also in developing countries in a way that is better for everybody and better for the planet. Emma, oh, sorry, Simon, please come in on that. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to come back also to the link of the consumer because there's clearly the, the 20 NDCs we mentioned, but actually we, we've just done another survey of the global consumers post-pandemic. And interestingly, what it says is that there is almost a new consumer group that's emerged, which is about 40 to 50 percent of folk who are actually we're calling the reimagined consumer. And the traditional value, just pure price quality, are still there, but there's new values which are dominating their thinking. And they are health and safety, their trust, their purpose, their product of origin. They're all the things which actually businesses would do to support the sustainability agenda. So, you know, businesses who are getting on this are actually hitting at the consumer need. And all of the countries, we believe, have a consumer movement to this reimagined consumer where this is a true now need for them societally, but also in their buying behaviour. So, you know, I, I think actually that consumer movement can be tremendously positive and a consistent thread globally. It is incredibly consistent. The reimagined consumer is a global phenomena, um, very evident here, but also elsewhere. Mm, uh, really, really interesting. I was talking to a heat pump engineer just the other day who was talking about how for many, many people wanting to get those installed, it's not just about the, the product, it is indeed the, the emissions. Um, Emma, I wanted to bring you in there because we've heard a couple of references to biodiversity loss, which is obviously a really critical issue here and around the world and I wondered what your kind of top two or three points on, on sort of how we address that might be and if I could I wanted to throw you another question which we've had from uh, Pip Goodwin who makes a point we've had a bit about trees already but Pip makes a point that trees are a really important part of the mix but two-thirds of the planet is ocean so will the government be pushing for a climate smart fisheries sector uh, I wonder if I could get your view on both of those Thank you. And uh, nature, I mean, it's fantastic to see how much biodiversity restoration of nature has gone up the global agenda and how much joining up we've seen between the different COP processes. So we have um, COP15, I think, still meeting at the moment on biodiversity, but a really strong presence of nature throughout the two weeks of planning for um, Glasgow and uh, really pleased Accenture's work supporting the Council for Sustainable Business that's another thing that I'm involved with and the Get Nature Positive campaign is just another manifestation of how you get government and businesses and investors and consumers working together on this um, agenda so some fantastic uh, commitments coming out fantastic calls for action led by the Prime Minister and Zach Goldsmith in particular around nature, hence the trees. I'm sure Allegra can go into the, the details of this. I'm not overly rehearsed on, on this, but that, that sense from our perspective uh, at the Environment Agency that uh, nature is so key to both the net zero agenda and the adaptation and resilience agenda. It has been really heartening to see how many of our flood projects have moved from being grey infrastructure to a real combination of green, blue and grey where it makes most sense. And, and seeing that take place and shift all the way around the world. The last COP had a very strong focus on oceans. And again, I know it's been key to the work of DEFRA ministers to make sure that there is a continued focus on the sea. From a vulnerable country perspective, a lot of the small island states now want to reposition themselves as the blue continent so that they're really seeing being seen as strong and 
and investing in their resilience, not just through land and becoming next zero, but through the oceans as, as well. So probably good to bring in Allegra to um, add to what, what I've just been saying. Thank you. You okay to comment on that, Tom? Yeah, please. Uh, uh, I, I always like, somebody said to me, they're not small island states, they're large ocean states. <laughs> I quite like that. So. <laughs> but um, but uh, the, the, the point is, uh, fundamentally, 1.5 is about the ocean because it's about the communities that if we if we can keep from five alive, then we are fund, you know, the, the, the physics of this is that we keep sea levels from rising because ultimately that's what 1.5 is there because at Paris, the small island states or large ocean states um, chanted it, right? And it's incredibly potent and powerful for that reason. Um, for them, I mean, when we were at Unger, the Prime Minister had the round, led the round table um, with other countries and it, and it ended up mostly being um, vulnerable nations. Um, and uh, Mia Motley of Barbados, she said, you know, they're making these, just describing what this actually feels like when seeing seeing sea levels rise and so on. So, and the, and the fear and the, and, and the hurricanes, she described hurricanes as um, the heart attacks of climate change. Um, and and uh, from Fiji, they talked about having, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but an ex an, a very, very large number of extreme weather events back after back after back. So fundamentally, 1.5 and Alok Sharma's push for 1.5 is, 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 is about life for those who live very close to the ocean and, um, and is also about um, the ecosystem of the ocean. Uh, but, you know, all cops need to have their kind of streamlined um, decisions and priorities. And these are the ones that Alok Sharma and the Prime Minister have chosen. And just to, 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 to loop in on some of the other points that, 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 um, that are almost themes that, that back each other up, on trees, um, there is already a declaration. It's called the New York Declaration, and it's from 2014. And this is to halt and reverse deforestation. But we are trying to make it bigger, have teeth, have money behind it, and reflect the processes that will actually stop um, deforestation. To your point, Simon, about um, about the the um, is it the reimagined consumer that you get yeah, right? So trying to reflect um, what supply use of de deforestation uh, within supply chains and 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 trying to actually push um, the processes to 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 end halt and reverse deforestation by 2030 and have a greater number of countries sign up to it. So I just thought it'd be helpful to explain what we're actually pushing for. Um, because it does speak to the points that are being raised about intelligent consumers. Yeah. Um, Allegra, a few more questions for you, I'm afraid, coming Brilliant. in from our, our audience. Um, so a couple, I mentioned at the top, um, you know, this issue of exactly who's going to turn up um, being being an always important thing at COPs. And Claire Ellicott from the Daily Mail says, you know, will COP be a failure if President Xi of China doesn't attend? And we've got a slightly related question from, from Robert Morland here who's asking, who do you expect to be the most difficult? Is it Russia, Australia and so on? I'm going to I'm afraid I'm going to be annoying because we have how I've actually lost track of how it's so close. It's sort of, <laughs> um, uh, it's sort of pointless counting the days now. Um, it is upon us. It is here. Uh, we are still anticipating and hoping that we have as many big players at COP as possible um, so that we drive the highest ambition, COP26, to keep 1.5 alive and to see real progress on cold cars, cash and trees. And um, it wouldn't be right for me to, 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 to single anyone or anything out, though I, I suspect, again, it will probably be vulnerable nations who, who, who like they did at Paris, um, you know, are, are, are clear that they 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 can't accept. Um, you know, they they will they will drive and drive and drive until they feel that that this is what they needed. No, is that uh, being difficult, or is that or is that what COP is about? Completely fair enough. And uh, I thought it was notable in Alex's speech yesterday the kind of uh, the G20 countries who were not named as having produced enhanced agreements. So we can all read between the lines on that one. A um, couple more questions, Allegra. Sorry, just on the on the domestic progress. Uh, one from uh, someone saying, you know, should we have published the net zero strategy a bit sooner to have more impact? Are we still expecting that ahead of the COP? 
And then another one from Claire from the Daily Mail who asks about electric car grants and the rumours that those are going to be cut and the message that that sends. Right. Um, uh, net zero strategy is coming before COP. Uh, you have had throughout the year a number of other strategies. You've already had the transport decarbonisation strategy, you've had the hydrogen strategy, and you will get before COP the heat and building strategy and the net zero strategy. You have also had over over the, 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 the last um, few years, you've had quite a number of um, uh, plans and pledges around how we will bring down our carbon. First of all, it was um, the target to bring it down by 68% by 2030, and now it's 78% by 2035. So I think there's no shortage of activity from, from Whitehall and the government on our, the, our, our carbon plans. Um, the next question was about EVs and, you know, cars, they're up there. Claire, you know, they're coal cars, cash and trees. We are clear that we, we have uh, the target to get to phase out diesel and petrol by 2030. And we are encouraging the world to do the same uh, major markets, many manufacturers by 2035. Um, you've seen, I'm sure you know, Claire, lots of people on this call will know um, the numbers are going up of people buying EVs. And in, in, the, in, the, in the not too distant future, we will I, mean, I think it was James that made the point earlier. When you look at EVs over their lifetime, um, they are lower cost to run. So um, the fundamentals are good and um, you will see in the next few weeks ahead of COP more details. OK, thank you for those. And we'll uh, Any give, more, you Tom? Give, give, give you a rest <laughs> now and we'll, we'll give the rest of the panel a go. Um, James and then Simon. So I've got a question here on, on green finance. We've got about five minutes left, so I'm going to come to the whole panel for closing comments after this one. Um, but a question on green finance here from Eric Albert. So he asks, do the panelists agree that finance per se won't drive change unless governments show the way by putting in place a proper carbon price? Otherwise, brown investments will simply keep going. Uh, James, where are you on this debate around carbon pricing? Uh, well, as uh, somebody from the World Bank who uh, got carbon pricing onto the agenda in Paris. We're very keen that it's a necessary but not sufficient part of the solution. Of course, we have a carbon price. There is a carbon price in the compliance market in the UK, which is uh, connected to the uh, EU ETS. Um, and we also have a carbon price emerging from the voluntary uh, carbon markets as well. But I think what's really worth focusing on is the social cost of carbon and the work that people like uh, Nick Stern and Joe Stiglitz did um, uh, after the Paris Agreement, which focuses on the price that we need uh, to both compensate the planet for the damage that fossil fuels are doing, but also to stimulate the investment that's required to shift away from carbon. And that's, you know, by 2030 would be $100 a tonne, uh, by 2040, uh, 40 to 80. So we're sort of there for some of the compliance markets, but we need to continue to go and we need broader coverage of carbon pricing. And do you think the politics are sort of possible on, on that? Well, I thought the OECD paper on this was quite interesting um, and quite promising. Um, but we'll see. Um, you know, I think it would help a lot if we could get uh, ambitious carbon pricing out there. Great. And Simon, did you want to come in on that? I mean, are, are businesses generally up for this sort well, of change to see more comprehensive carbon pricing? I think that's a tricky answer to give, um, just to sort of a, a relevance of, of, of what might be needed, though. We recently had a session with the Accenture board with the MIT professor, John Sturman, who's developed an open source model around what variables will drive a reduction. And in that modeling, um, one of the biggest factors was carbon pricing. Uh, moving. So it would indicate that part of the solution is going to be need to be something of a, of a greater sort than we currently have. Um, and it was a big driver of change. So, um, yeah. OK, um, we've got about a minute left. So I'm going to come around each of the panelists. If I could just ask you very briefly, what's the kind of one thing, if I can put you on the spot, one thing um, after the COP that we should look out for to judge whether it has been a success? Emma, can I come to you first on that? Real action, real stuff happening on the ground. OK, Allegra, come to you next. The 1.5 is alive. Uh, the, the, the judgment is from reasonable observers that it is still possible to limit temperature increases to 1.5. I'd like to say a noun 
and a thing, but I think that wouldn't be right. I think it's just got to be this judgment that that temperature increase will not go up above 1.5. That's what we all need. And who are those reasonable observers? That's the sort of scientific community so, who will come out. Yeah, I mean, some of the people that have been name checked on this call already, um, you know, uh, wise heads. OK, we'll look out for those. James? Um, uh, making sure the money is available to, to do this. Um, and I think it will be. Uh, so uh, let's finance the transition. OK, and Simon? Uh, I'll support Allegra. The, the 1.5 and all the associated investment, which will now be required to do that, provides a framework for us to have a chance. Brilliant. Um, well, that's all we've got time for. Um, thank you very much to everyone for watching at home, uh, submitting a whole host of brilliant questions. Thank you to Accenture for sponsoring the event and thank you most of all to my panel for engaging with all of those questions uh, so openly. Um, so this event will be, uh, the recording will be on our website from tomorrow for anyone who didn't manage to catch the whole thing. Do look out for further events that we'll be doing on climate change and a report that we're putting out uh, just ahead of the spending review on net zero and the tax system. That's all from us. <laughs>